Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom where I try to cut through the BS and the smoke and mirrors and lay out exactly what the clowns are trying to do to you and what is coming next. I'm also active on Twitter and Substack, so I hope to see you there. A top currency analyst warned last week that de-dollarization is happening faster than people realize. Indeed, that the dollar has already suffered a, quote, stunning collapse. Meanwhile, separate data from central banks around the world confirm that after decades of complacency, the landscape is shifting. The warning came from former Morgan Stanley analyst Stephen Jen, who finds that adjusting for price changes reveals the true speed of de-dollarization, specifically that the dollar share went from 73% in 2001 to 55% in 2021, at which point it fell off a cliff, losing market share 10 times faster. The dollar plunged 8 percentage points in share in a single year to just 47%. So we lost about double the entire share of the Chinese yuan, and at that pace, the US dollar would be eclipsed in, oh, about six years. So what happened in 2022? Simple, sanctions. Last year, the US froze $300 billion in Russian central bank dollars. That's about $4 trillion in US terms, controlling for GDP. Keep in mind, these were Russia's sovereign dollars. They, and everybody else in the world, thought of them like gold. Now, this was something we hadn't even done during the Cold War, during the height of the Cold War, with hot proxy wars all over the world, because we were run by adults. Why did Biden do it? The goal was to cause bank panics and crash the Russian economy, perhaps to set off mass unemployment and civil unrest. Of course, it backfired. Instead, sending countries around the world in panicked flight from the dollar, lest the U.S. wake up one morning after a spicy night on the town with some flashy new lobbyist and decide to collapse their country too. Perhaps ending in their president being torn into travel-sized pieces by a mob like in Libya. Of course, it was one thing to do this to Libya, but here was a real country, and the weapon of choice was very precisely their own sovereign dollars. And so, overnight, the U.S. dollar went from the world's rock-solid store of value to a political football held hostage to whichever lobbyist or activist caught Joe Biden's eye this week. Where did all those dollars go to? That flight went to the next best thing, the yen, the euro, and to gold. Together, the yen and euro's price-adjusted reserve share soared five points over the year, so they gobbled up about two-thirds of what the dollar lost. Now, both Japan and Europe do have inflation, just like America. Japan is running at a big in Japan, three and a half points. Europe is closer to eight and a half. But both currencies have the very appealing feature that they do not topple your country when they don't like your foreign policy. As for gold, a separate article in today's FT reports that central bank gold buying is off the charts, literally up 152% year on year uh, in 2022. And it is now at 1136 tons, almost double the record high. The FT, like Jen, blames the sanctions for driving countries off the dollar and into anything else that will hold water. So what is next? If reserve assets are fleeing the dollar, while trade is methodically shifting to bilateral currencies helped by China, the last man standing on the dollar wall is financial flows, the lubricant in global commerce. These have unique network effects, but they also have unique and growing regulatory risks, which I will have to cover in another video. So bottom line, if the US dollar does continue on this path, 
We will see soaring inflation, a catastrophic fall in American standard of living, and a U.S. that falls off the world stage, not by choice, but by necessity. All of it, 100%, our own making. Zero Hedge has a great article yesterday on credit hitting an absolute wall. In short, it's much worse than a normal recession, at least so far, suggesting something fundamental may have broken in the economy. So first, what happened? The article by One River's Eric Peters describes a major developer with a strong track record who's putting up a 30-story project in a top-tier U.S. city. Their lender suddenly pulled financing, meaning they had to scramble to find another bank. They called, quote, well over 100 banks, not one will provide financing. By the way, the developer had built right through the 2008 crisis, where real estate was literally ground zero, and says he has never seen anything like this. So this should not be happening. It shouldn't be this bad, not this early. Higher rates on loans, sure, but not 100 banks refusing to lend at all to a major developer in a major city. Worse, we're already seeing more of this. Last week, I talked about major banks rescinding their car dealer floor plans. That's how dealers get a hold of cars in the first place. If this is happening more widely, it suggests banks are absolutely panicked, suggesting the entire banking system is in danger of seizing up. That would, of course, be catastrophic for jobs, for the businesses that maintain those jobs. It would also be catastrophic for customers who've grown utterly dependent on a free flow of credit. So why is this abnormal? Well, in a normal recession, it happens when credit is suddenly choked off. That causes a bunch of businesses to fail all at once. This normally doesn't happen on its own outside of war or social collapse. Those are things that would make everybody suddenly stop lending. But modern central banks managed to pull this off with ease by simply yanking up interest rates. They do that to fight the inflation they caused with ease by yanking interest rates too low in the first place. Now, in a normal recession from the outside, what we see is business loans might go from 4% to 8%. Car loans might go from 0% to 7%. This calls the herd, wiping out the crappy businesses, the malinvestments, that only survived on the cheap money. And consumers, of course, pull back. Taken together, that is a classic recession. But this time is different. So far, at least, it is a lot worse. Loans aren't just getting more expensive. They are hitting a complete wall. If this keeps up, we could see loans dry up for cars, for businesses, small businesses especially, even mortgages, financing for things like replacing your roof. This would be extraordinarily disruptive to an American economy that's grown utterly dependent on 20 years of almost uninterrupted easy money and the credit it pours on them. Like a bicycle, if you stop pedaling, it could fall down. So what happens next? If credit has hit a wall, we will see deafening demands for the Fed to step in and print up what nobody will loan, meaning a return to the very inflation that kicked off the recession in the first place. We'll know over the next 12 to 18 months if this is just a normal recession or if indeed we are in new territory. But in the meantime, reports like this are certainly not encouraging. The central bankers of the world, apparently losing confidence that they can fix the inflation they created, are turning to plan B. 
Blame the rest of us, so we fight each other. Yesterday, the chief economist of the Bank of England, one Hugh Pill, said the quiet part out loud that, quote, British households and businesses need to accept they are poorer and stop seeking pay increases and pushing prices higher. Note, inflation in the UK is currently running double digits with grocery prices up 19% year on year. So not seeking a raise may well mean cutting a meal. Meanwhile, a poll from a major British insurer found 57% of small businesses in Britain are at risk of closure from rising prices. So you plebes need to drop a meal and maybe close the family business so we can keep stealing from you. According to The Guardian, central bankers actually have a name for this scapegoating, greedflation, as in double-digit inflation has nothing to do with central bankers printing up trillions and handing it to government, governments, bankers, and surely by accident, to the rich at the fastest pace in 50 years. In fact, last year, one in four pounds in existence and almost one in three dollars had been printed in just the previous three years. But you see, that was all a sheer coincidence. What's really happening here is that for some bizarre reason, everybody got really greedy. We weren't greedy before, mind you, but now we are and it's got to stop. The beauty of the greedflation excuse is not only does it dodge blame for central bankers' institutionalized pillaging, it sets the masses against one another whilst the elite use their central banks to thieve away. And they're quite open about this. A couple weeks ago, the European Central Bank put out a tweet asking, quote, what really drives inflation, profits or wages? So, get it, voter? Is it the greedy right-wing capitalist, or is it the greedy left-wing unions? Now, they do this because if they can get half the country to blame the other half, the bankers and the bureaucrats who actually cause the problems are off the hook. They can get back to siphoning away all of our life savings and future prospects whilst we fight. It's almost enough to make you wonder if maybe Americans or Britons or Europeans don't actually hate each other, that perhaps we actually agree the system is broken, but our elite does everything they can to set us against one another. This divide the masses campaign has been going on for a long time, certainly since the founding of the Federal Reserve. Indeed, ever since Western governments took on an activist role that converted them from responsible custodians of the common good fixing potholes, dredging ports, the sort of night watchman state, and turn them into existential political footballs in service to the elite and to be weaponized against the masses. They ran this playbook perfectly last financial crisis, setting the right populist Tea Party and the left populist Occupy movement, turning them away from bankers who had just pillaged the country and turning them against each other. They will, no doubt, try again. And your part in all this? Make do with less, take one for the team, fight against your neighbor so the elite can go on robbing all of us and all of our children blind. We've got announcements this week on the accelerating decline of the dollar coming from China, Argentina, and the African gold producer, Ghana. 
First up, China announced they're now using more yuan than dollars in their cross-border payments. At this point, the yuan is now used in almost half of all of China's cross-border payments for the first time edging out the US dollar at a 47% share. Now, the dollar share is down 2% from just a month ago, meaning China could be substantially free of the dollar in another couple of years. Now, China is by far the world's largest exporter. It exports almost double what the US does. So, paired with other countries also getting out of the dollar, this is driving down dollar trade settlement worldwide. According to SWIFT, the global consortium of banks and financial firms that handles cross-border currency trades, the US dollar is now down to just 40% of world trade being settled in dollars. Now, that is a very large drop from the dollar's 52% share as recently as 2014. In fact, another couple years of this, and the dollar starts to approach America's actual share of world GDP of roughly 25%. In other words, if you get to 25%, you are no longer a reserve currency, at least not for trade. You're just doing at-home stuff. Next up, Argentina announced it's shifting the yuan for Chinese imports. Now, that's expected to total about $10 billion per year going forward. In fact, Argentina is turning from the dollar more broadly, running down its dollar reserves and replacing them with Chinese yuan. Just last November, Argentina announced a fresh $5 billion swap. That's a loan between central banks. Now, for perspective, China is already Argentina's second largest trading partner, and Argentina is the second biggest economy in South America, after Brazil, which, oddly enough, also recently announced it's switching to yuan. In fact, last month, Brazil reported that the yuan passed the euro to become the number two currency in Brazil's foreign exchange reserves. By the way, as recently as 2018, Brazil had zero Chinese yuan. And also note Brazil still holds about 250 billion US dollars, so there is a long ways down if they keep at it. Finally, the country of Ghana, the sixth largest gold producer in the world, is now requiring gold miners to sell 20% of their gold to the government, which it will then use to pay for imported oil rather than chasing dollars that could be rug-pulled at any moment. This kind of moving towards hard assets is very similar to what Russia did last year with its own gold producers, and it suggests a new trend for developing countries to quickly exit the dollar. In fact, the president of the seventh largest gold producer, Indonesia, has already said he wants out of the dollar. He literally said, quote, look what happened to Russia. Note, number three gold producer, Russia, number 12, South Africa, and number 14, Brazil, are already part of BRICS, while other major gold producers like Peru, Kazakhstan, and Sudan may be next. It was once unthinkable that the U.S. would lose dominance in manufacturing, and yet our politicians made it happen via death by a thousand cuts. And so, once again, our leaders turned to destroying, cut by self-inflicted cut, what it took generations to build. Fresh economic numbers suggest the American economy is slowing fast while inflation remains donkey stubborn high, raising the specter of that dreaded combination against which our generously compensated experts are powerless, stagflation. First, the numbers. New data says growth in the first quarter dropped by half from 2.6% to 1.1%. Taking out rising government spending brings that to 0.3%, which is roughly how fast the population grows. 
In other words, the American economy is barely holding on, or as the New York Times dryly put it, the efforts to cool off the economy are having an effect. It gets worse if we look under the hood, because it turns out even that so-called growth is running on fumes, because investment, the way we actually grow an economy and actually get richer, is falling, and it has been falling for a full year now. Meaning at this point, the only thing holding us above water is consumption, fueled not only by unsustainable government debt, but by unsustainable personal debt, digging holes in credit cards, buying essentials on installments. By the way, I've got a video on this, how one in 10 Americans is now buying their groceries on installment, which is pretty dire. Now, it's worth pausing to address the Keynesian fiction that consumption is how to grow an economy. It is not, because consumption is just what it says on the tin. It means using stuff up, which is nice to have, but if it's fueled by debt, it is not making us richer, it is making us poorer. So we don't have actual investment, we don't have new companies, new jobs, new innovations. In fact, we have mass layoffs and entire industries being banned as we speak, but at least we've got the debt. Now, one of the biggest shocks in the new numbers were inventories, which are plunging. This means companies are purging what they've got at any price they can get, suggesting they do not believe the consumer is anywhere near sustainable. So we're floating on debt, and the guys who know the consumer best can hear the clock ticking. Next up, the other piece of the stagflation nightmare, prices. New numbers yesterday showed the Fed's favorite measure of inflation came in at or above expectations. That was the fifth month in a row of upside surprise, and it suggests that inflation is nowhere near dead, which it should be given the Fed has just hiked rates at the most aggressive pace in 50 years, and we have the bank crashes to show for it with First Republic's drama this week showing no sign of easing. Now, it's not just the U.S. Fresh numbers out of Europe show it limping along at 0.1%. It's actually lower than population growth, meaning they are getting poorer, while prices in the eurozone are running at almost 7%, closer to 8% in once hard money Germany. So a specter is haunting the world, the specter of inflation. And standard policy tools, which means handing out trillions of dollars, do not work against stagflation. They actually make it worse, meaning the only tool they have left is massive 1970s-style rate hikes that would likely crush the global economy or, of course, tell their governments to spend less, which they will not do. Bank crashes are back. Just five weeks ago, Janet Yellen gave a speech amid fears of regional banks collapsing, where she said, quote, the situation is stabilizing and the U.S. banking system remains sound. The New York Post characterized it as, quote, drooling happy talk. And yes, it turns out Janet lied. Yesterday, the FDIC said it will take over one of the largest regional banks in America, in preparation for a bailout, followed by a fire sale to a mega bank. For those following along at home, this makes five major banks vanished in 50 days, Silicon Valley Bank, Silvergate, Signature, Credit Suisse, and now First Republic. So what happened to First Republic? Well, they're going through a concentrated version of what all U.S. banks are going through, reckless Fed hikes that gutted their bond portfolios while driving businesses to bankruptcy. That's actually the Fed's stated goal to crush jobs in order to counteract the inflation that it created. So the loans go bad, 
while the bonds are melting. In First Republic's case, those losses were big enough to scare depositors, who pulled $100 billion out, that's over half of First Republic's deposits, at which point a cartel of major banks parachuted in $30 billion, and First Republic announced emergency borrowings from the Fed and Treasury, meaning from you, whether you like it or not. But it wasn't nearly enough. Earnings this week showed First Republic is done, unable to service those loans, and the stock plunged, going from $115 a month ago to $2.33 late last night, barely worth a Pentagon toilet. One major analyst guessed First Republic had a negative value of $14 billion, meaning that they owe $14 billion more than they had. So what's next for First Republic? At this point, it looks like FDIC will orchestrate a takeover, probably guarantee all the depositors, especially that $30 billion line from the major banks who expect a return on their lobbying dollar. Then the bailed-out remnant gets sold to a megabank. At the moment, the most likely are JP Morgan, the biggest bank in America, and PNC, the sixth biggest. So another one bites the dust, absorbed into the too-big-to-fail Borg. Now, what's next for the rest of us? Lawrence Lepard had a great tweet laying out the hidden losses across the U.S. banking system, concluding that the entire system is in danger and we could get to the Fed effectively becoming the FDIC, funded, of course, with the only song that the Fed knows, that trillion-dollar money printer. The big picture here is that about $17 trillion in bank deposits in America are guaranteed by roughly $100 billion in the FDIC. So that's about six-tenths of a percent. Just nobody overpromises like the federal government overpromises. So if losses do exceed six-tenths of a percent, given the Treasury is currently already spending down its couch cushion money to evade the debt ceiling, it then falls to the Fed to run all of the bailouts using the only tool it has, your dollar. You pay more for groceries and rent, but by Jiminy, no banker and no millionaire is left behind. If that is the end game here, then Jerome Powell's job-crushing, economy-gutting, bank loan disemboweling rate hikes will have all been for nothing, canceled out with a fat dollop of banker bailout. A betting man would say that is exactly what's next. New numbers this week are expected to show the job situation is dropping fast, meaning that the millions of jobs the Fed is merrily butchering are not extra jobs lying around. Those are jobs people actually need. The other day I talked about how thousands of homeless encampments spreading across America are not actually counted as unemployed. Through the magic of government statistics, they are instead counted as, quote, out of the labor force. Statistically, they're retired. This is because government statistics, you'll be shocked to discover, minimize the number. They only count jobless people if they are actively looking for a job. That means if somebody is living permanently on government benefits or living in a tent strung out on fentanyl, they are not, as a rule, actively seeking a job. It turns out that is a lot of people and it's rising fast. If we compare to the Trump era trend, there are about 3.6 million missing American workers in the past three years alone. Where did they all go? Well, 2.5 million went on disability, which soared over the past three years, and the last million are simply not being counted. If we did count them, we'd be looking at an unemployment rate 
right now of about 6%, which is smack dab where we were at the start of the 2008 crisis. But the sugar-coated books are only half the story, because even with the bank crashes, we haven't even begun to feel what the Fed's economy-choking hikes will do to jobs. Now, it's well accepted that there's a big policy lag in rate hikes, meaning once you raise interest rates, it'll take something like 12 to 18 months for the effects to hit the economy. In fact, the Fed's epic round of rate hikes started in April of 2022, so that's exactly 12 months ago, but they didn't really start biting until about October, which is six months ago, meaning we have barely begun to feel the first light breezes of what could be, going by the credit crunch, one heck of a storm. And that's where the new jobs numbers come in, because they're saying that light breeze is already toppling buildings, starting with job openings. Now, a year ago, there were 12 million job openings in America, which is about three and a half million above trend. That was back when nobody wanted to work, so McDonald's was offering 15 or 20 bucks an hour. Those days are now long gone. Tuesday's numbers are expected to show just 1 million above trend. So we burned off two thirds of the so-called surplus jobs before the rates even hit. Meanwhile, pain is coming from the other side of the anvil. According to one layoff tracker focused on tech, companies have, quote, slashed more than 170,000 jobs in the past four months. That's compared to 15,000 jobs cut in 2021. So we could be in for a whole lot more pain in jobs, suggesting that the Fed's current strategy of sacrificing jobs to hide the inflation it created is going to backfire. In fact, it could lead to stagflation, this time combined not with $20 McDonald's jobs, but with millions of jobless desperate to make ends meet. Thanks for listening. Follow to get next week's episode right in your inbox, and I hope to see you on Twitter and Substack.